All right, well, I grew up in a church where on Easter Sunday, the pastor would stand up and he would say, He is risen. He is risen indeed. You get it. Good job. Good job. Um, you know, last week we left off seeing the crowds hailing Jesus as their king. A lot can change in just a few days, can't it? I know people who have stories like this, but uh, have you ever had your life turned upside down in a very short amount of time? Everything seems great, and it seems like just overnight, everything, the bottom drops out. Now, the advantage Jesus had over us, and there are a lot of them, but in this instance, one of the advantages, the biggest advantage he had was he knew He knew that the same ones that were tossing their coats and palm branches down and claiming him as their king would be the same ones yelling crucify him just a few short days later. So I'm going to ask you to turn with me to John 18. We're standing in the post-resurrection world. Even uh, if we were thousands of years ago when it happened, it was already discovered by now. By this time of the day, it had already been discovered Uh, The road to Emmaus uh, had probably already taken place as far as the starting of those conversations. There were lots of things that had already transpired, but what we're going to do is go back in time just a little bit. We're going to go back to what we would say is Thursday. John 18, verses 33 through 38. Here's what's happened up to this point. Jesus has come into Jerusalem on the donkey, just like he was prophesied to do. And the people hail him as king, just as it was prophesied they would do. And the people throw palm branches down in front of him and say, uh, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel, which is what was prophesied they would say. So all this has taken place, and the chief priests look at this and they say, there's no stopping this now unless we commit to this plan. There were some within their circles that had already made up their mind that the only way to get this to stop was to put Jesus to death. But they weren't all there yet. They weren't all in one accord yet. And after they see all the people in Jerusalem hailing him as their king, the king of Israel, by the way, that's whenever the Pharisees, the chief priests, the religious rulers look at one another and say, the crowds have gone with him. We have to do this. We have to do it now. So what they did was they took the people's words about Jesus and they used them against Jesus to get him convicted of something he wasn't guilty of, an insurrection. Now, there was nothing that would appeal to a Roman governor more than to tell him that he was on the verge of overseeing another Jewish insurrection to try to overthrow Rome. You want to get the attention of the governor, that's what you tell him. You tell him that he is about to sit in charge overseeing another rebellion another rebellion. And we can't have that. We can't have another rebellion. We can't have another moment where, where our, uh, our livelihoods are threatened and our, our, our time is taken away from us and our, 
It's just bloodshed for no reason. And then we're going to have to send in the Roman guards and they're going to have to, they're going to have to thump some heads and it's going to get ugly. This has happened before. History would tell us that Pilate had sat under a similar uprising and he was basically told if it ever happened again, it's your head. Now, I believe that the chief priests knew all of that and they appealed to that whenever they took an innocent man before Pilate and said, do you see the crowds and what they're saying about him? They're saying he's our king. It's only a matter of time before he has enough people amassed. He's going to come after you. And once he has you, he's going to make his way to Rome. And they believe he can do it. So you might want to side with us here, Pilate. You might want to get this guy off of the scene. Because the more he has influence, the more it threatens your kingdom. They're taking the fake nobility high road, right? Appealing to someone's ego, appealing to his own insecurities as a person in authority. And it works. They get audience with Pilate, and that's where we pick up the story. John 18, starting verse 33, says this. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Jesus said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? It's a philosophical question that's echoed through the ages. So let me explain to you a little bit about what's happening here. Pilate is essentially saying, if the Jews get what they want from you, this is going to be a real problem for me. So I'm going to give you a chance. There are other accounts of this that, rem- that, that Pilate tries to remind Jesus who's in charge. He says, do you not understand that I have the power to either put you to death or to grant you life? And Jesus responds, you would have no power at all if it were not given to you by my father. What Pilate is saying here is, I'm giving you a chance to refute what's been accused of you. They're saying that you are on the verge of orchestrating an uprising. Is that what you're doing? Is that what you're going to do? Are you a king? Because if you are, we got a real problem here. And Jesus answers and says, yes. But you have no idea what I'm talking about. Yes. You say that I am a king. He says it in a way that says he's turning it back on Pilate. You said I was a king. And and for this reason, that's why I'm here. 
I am here for this purpose. I was born here for this purpose. I've come into this world for this purpose because I am to bear witness to the truth. And if you are of the truth, you'll hear my voice and you'll follow me. And so when Pilate says, what is truth? I believe that something is compelling in him to wonder Is there something this guy is teaching on and doing and about that I have no idea about? You got whole crowds of people in a city I'm supposed to be governing that are following you. And they're hearing your voice and they're following you. And yet this is the first that you and I are meeting. And the decision I have to make is whether you're you should be put to death or not. So we left off with Jesus riding into town and the people hailing him as their king. And just a few short days later, those same people, if you look at the end of chapter 18, after, after Pilate says, what is truth? He says, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again. They cried out again. These are the same crowds. Listen to what they're saying now. Same Jesus, same crowds, same town. Not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas was a known insurrectionist. He had tried to overthrow Rome before. He was also a criminal and a murderer. He was a thief. And so the reason I believe Pilate chooses Barabbas is because Barabbas is so clearly guilty and so clearly evil and so clearly wrong and stands in vast contrast to a very innocent Jesus. So this is Pilate trying to get out of making a hard decision. So he says, all right, you have a custom that I release to you a prisoner. There's no way they're going to let Barabbas go, okay? Just trust me on this. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews or Barabbas? And to his shock and amazement, the crowd says, the murderer. We want the murderer. Religion is a very powerful force. Religion is what caused the the crowd to turn on Jesus. Religious devotion to the wrong thing to their customs, to their way of life, but not to God, and definitely not to His Word, not in the full counsel of God. And this religion, these religious leaders had swayed the crowd to think think things on Jesus that were not true. And they did that, they manipulated that to get what they wanted. Well, they thought they were getting what they were wanted. I want to go back, though, because Pilate asks this very important question in in verse 38 of chapter 18. He says, what is truth? But what we have is Jesus just a few chapters back answering the question. Maybe if you were like me and you did a wanna, you would remember memorizing this verse. But John 14, verse 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. 
He's preemptively answering a question that the governor is going to ask him four chapters later. When he looks out and says, what is truth? Jesus essentially had, had already answered that by saying, me, I am truth. I am the embodiment of the word of God. Now, that led me to realize that if we're looking at that question, what is truth? I believe that there's only three pathways that we as human beings tend to take. The first one is this. There is no God. That's the first pathway. We say there is no God. And then we trust science to answer that question for us, or we trust our gut, or we find voices that match up with what we already have come to the conclusion on, and that's what we go with. There is no God. That's the conclusion we come to. The second conclusion, or the second pathway that we could take, is there is a God, and He will bow to my demands. We've talked about this the last two weeks. We come to God almost like it's a negotiation. Like, I know I need eternal life, so I'm going to raise my hand and get my get-out-of-hell free card, but God, this is what you're going to give me, and I'm going to give you a few things in my life. For the most part, my life's not going to change. I'll give you a few things. I'll attend church. I'll clean up my language. I won't go to the strip clubs anymore, and I'll try my best to look at, you know, somewhat good sites whenever I'm on the Internet. I won't overuse my phone. If I share something on social media, it won't be my thoughts. I'll just be sharing somebody else's thoughts, even though they're super negative. And the list goes on and on and on. And we tell God, I will change as much as I need to change to accept this get out of hell free card, but I'm not going to radically alter my life around you. So you give me what I know I need and want. I'll give you parts of me. And we'll be good. And you leave me alone, and I'll leave you alone, and then I can call myself a Christian. That's the second pathway. And the third pathway says there is a God, and I will serve him exclusively. I will make him my Savior and my Lord. I will see his goodness. I will see his kindness, and it will draw me to repentance. I will see the beauty of what he did on the cross, and I will be drawn to it. It will bring me to my knees. It will drop me to my face, and I will be completely in awe, overwhelmed in the grace of it all. The undeserved gift of God to love me enough to take something I could never carry for myself. The unfortunate reality is most people in a blank survey that call themselves Christians would probably fall into category two. We clean ourselves up and we do what we need to do to call ourselves Christians and help ourselves sleep at night, but he is not our Lord. He's not our king. See, only one of these three is the posture of someone who believes Jesus is their king. I believe that Pilate had an opportunity here to confess and know and believe that Jesus was his king. I don't know his heart. There's not a whole lot about the man. But what we do know is he did not believe that Jesus was guilty and he did not believe that he deserved to die. We know that's true. And the way he tried to skirt that was by saying, you know what, I wash my hands of this. You want to take it and do it, Jews, you go right ahead. It's not on, his blood is not on my hands. But it was. They had to have Roman permission to do a Roman execution. So by saying it's up to you, he gave them permission. And he did that because there was a huge crowd 
that already didn't like him telling him what they wanted. So instead of being compelled by the grace of God in the person of Jesus, eye to eye with the person of Jesus, and Jesus is reminding him, you wouldn't have any authority at all if it wasn't given to my father. You have a choice to make here. I'm going to that cross today. That's essentially what Jesus says. So let's revisit John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. See, I think the thing that without a full grasp of the full counsel of God, Genesis to Revelation, the whole word of God, we can, we can get wrapped up in some, and we can convince ourselves that there's some parts of negativity about all of this, this Easter message, this exclusivity of it all. There's only one way to God. Yeah. But there's only one way because there was only one way. A sinless life. There wasn't a path to enlightenment. It was just a sinless life. So God in his grace gave us the Ten Commandments. He gives the law in the Old Testament. And he says, just so you know, that's what it looks like. A perfect and spotless, blameless life, that's what it looks like. You should strive for that. I mean, you're a sinner, though. You won't be able to do it. So the law wasn't there to make us feel oppressed. It was there to reveal to us a need to be fixed. That we needed an expert to come in and help us do what we couldn't do. And Jesus steps in and lives a sinless life, obeys the law, does everything that a righteous and holy life needs to look like. Jesus does that. So when they put him on that cross on what we call Good Friday, he was a pure and spotless, all-sufficient, full atoning sacrifice for the sins he never committed. That led me to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's teaching the church in Corinth. And I'm going to read it to you in two different versions, but the first is ESV, which is what you would have in front of you if you're using the Bible in the chair there. But 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. And listen to what Paul says, and then I'm going to read the message version of it, Eugene Peterson, just so you can get a, an idea of like a conversational tone of it. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor 
is not in vain. This is the same passage from the message. I need to emphasize, friends, that our natural earthly lives don't in themselves lead us by their very nature into the kingdom of God. Their very nature is to die. So how could they naturally end up in the life kingdom? Let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery I'll probably never fully understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You hear a blast to end all blasts from a trumpet, and in the time that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable, taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable. This mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true. Death swallowed up by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening, and law code guilt that gave sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now, in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of our Master, Jesus Christ, thank God, with all this going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Jesus pays a price. It says that, that we have no other way, that death will come for us all, right? But Jesus, it says, death swallowed up through his triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? Death is not a fearful thing now when we have Jesus because we know that our last breath here just signifies that it's our first one drawn in his presence. And if that's the case, if that's the motivator, if that's the good news, the good news that we've been redeemed and given eternal hope, well then, why would we ever walk around this life like it's a drudgery, like it's awful? Why would we ever have a posture of complete defeat in the reality of the one thing that we all can't escape being conquered on our behalf? We can't conquer sin. We can't conquer death. We can't conquer guilt on our own. No matter how powerful we think we are, we will lose to all three of those all the time, every time, unless we have someone fight that battle for us that can win. And that's what Easter is all about. You don't have to be that mopey, defeated person anymore. You see, but our response doesn't dictate Jesus's royalty. I think sometimes we live arrogantly like that's true. We live like the reason Jesus is king is because that's what I call him. The reason Jesus is royalty is because that's what I say he is. 
The reason Jesus is Lord and Savior is because that's what I say He is. No, our response doesn't dictate Jesus' royalty. His royalty and lordship dictates our standing and it dictates our identity. Someone comes up to me and says, tell me a little bit about yourself. You know what my first propensity is? It's probably the same thing yours is. Tell them my name. Tell them I'm married, that I have four kids. Tell them what I do for a living. Right? Tell me a little bit about yourself. For some reason, I don't automatically say, I am a child of the living God. No longer living under the fear of death, guilt, or sin, or shame. I'm, I'm who he says I am. Out of that, there's a lot of things I get to do in this life, like be a husband and a father and a pastor. But who am I? What am I about? What makes me tick? Well, it's that Jesus assigned and gave me and completely changed my identity. I am no longer a sinner. I am a child of the King. I mean, most people would probably be like, I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> of course you're a pastor, right? But our identity and our standing is dictated by Jesus' royalty. We don't get to dictate anything about him. We don't get to make statements about Jesus that aren't true. I mean, we can't. But A, we'd be lying. B, we'd be arrogant, and C, we're going to answer for that someday. And it led me to something else Paul says in Philippians. In Philippians chapter 2, he's trying to encourage the followers in Philippi. And this is the passage, if you're familiar with it, where he says that uh, if, you, if you are united in Christ, then there's certain behavioral patterns that should come out of the church. The church should be loving one another. The church should be uh, of like mind. The church should be not a selfish place or driven by ambition of selfishness or a place of conceit. The church shouldn't be that. The church should be a place where humility is in, is in practice and regular, regular rhythms and motions and we're just consistently considering others as more important than ourselves. And, and it just try to posture yourself like Jesus. Because Jesus, even though he was God, did not live like equality with God was something we could understand. But being in very nature, God, he committed himself to this. He was a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. And listen from verse 8 to 11. He says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a beautiful name. The name of Jesus. It's known the world over. No matter what pocket of society you go into, most places in the world 
can tell you something about the person of Jesus, whether it's historical, whether it's just they recognize it on a statue that they saw somewhere, or fill in the blanks. But at that very name, at the end of time, Jesus will be revealed to the hearts that didn't believe in him, who he really is. So Easter is about second chances, third chances, fourth chances, fifth chances, umpteenth amount of chances because we are sinners saved by a gracious king. Easter is about assigned identities loved and cherished by your maker. That's your story. That can be your story. No matter what understanding you had of Jesus before this morning, just know that Easter is so much more than what we give it credit for. Easter is the turning point of human history. It's the moment that all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, past, present, and future, was thrown upon Jesus' body and nailed to a cross. And all of that sin was thrust upon him as he hung there. And then he allowed himself to die. We've been picturing this a lot in our house over the last two days, trying to talk about it and and be visual about it, but can you just picture the scene if you could find yourself somehow being inside that tomb just 30 seconds before it happened? A dead, rotting corpse laying inside of a cave, covered in cloths, head and face wrapped tight, laying on a stone tablet. Silence. Sadness, darkness. Lungs fill, cloths rip, and a glorified Jesus stands and the stone just rolls away like it weighs nothing. Victory over something we could never defeat on our own. We get to claim that. We get to live out of that reality. It wasn't just a story. It wasn't just something that he did out of obligation. He did this out of obedience to the Father and love. So I have two takeaways for you today. Number one is this. Jesus is the king we need and the king our soul craves. I think our souls all crave for something, to have some kind of identity, to have some kind of footing, to have some kind of something that, that makes us feel known and understood and matter in this world. There, there's a longing in us, and by a gracious God's hand, He allows us to carry that. No matter how lost and dark we feel, no matter how, how painful our pasts are, it doesn't matter. There is a piece of us that's always longing for an answer to a question we can't quite put into words. 
the longing somewhere in this part of our body called a soul that nobody can identify where it's located, but something in us that is just begging to answer the question, why am I here? What is this all about? Why does this even matter? This amount of time here, why is there so much attention in our culture put on what happens after you die? Because there's something in us. Our Father allowed us to have something in us, like a magnet that is constantly trying to find our way back home. Hungering and thirsting. He's the king that we need. See, sin makes things foggy. I've worn glasses since I was in eighth grade. Bifocals, by the way, I was very popular. <laughs> Especially with the ladies. It was either the bull cut or the bifocals. I'm not 100% sure, but... Oh, I got braces too, so that helped. <laughs> but I've had glasses my whole life, it feels like. Every once in a while, Meg will be like over here, and she'll look at me, and she'll say, Adam, I don't even know how you can see out of those things. And I'll take my glasses off and be like, yikes. And they are filthy. I mean, filthy. Look like they were soaked in pond water for like three days. And then I just was like, yep, that's good. <laughs> and you know what happens when I get to that point? I can still see through my glasses, obviously enough that I can read and not get a headache or whatever. But then I take them off and I clean them and I put them back on and I'm like, oh, now I can see. Now I can see the grime got cleared off, the dirt, the stuff that was sitting there. I chose to look through it. Maybe I was ignorant to it, but it was there nonetheless. Maybe I was that, that, that one like speck of dirt that's on there that I can see is like a blurry thing. You glasses wearers know what I'm talking about. And there are times where I'm just like too lazy to clean it off. I'm like, I just deal with it. But then I take my glasses off and I clean them. And I look around at the world around me, and all of a sudden, things are clearer than they were before. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is what cleans our vision up so that when we look at the world around us, we see it with a little bit more clarity. The good news of Jesus comes in and helps us see clearly what's in front of us, because sin makes things foggy and grimy and hard to see clear. You ever driven in a really bad foggy storm or a, I don't know what you call it, fog storm? I don't know what you call it. When fog rolls in, is it called a storm? If it's not, it is now. <laughs> a fog storm. And you just kind of like, you're, you're looking for anything that can help you know you're heading in the right direction. Whether you're looking to the left and hopefully you're seeing some of those lines pass or over on the right or looking straining ahead of you, how far is the car in front of me and hopefully his lights are on. You know what I'm talking about? Doesn't life feel like that sometimes? You're just kind of taking a step and hoping you don't jump off of a cliff unknowingly. It just feels foggy and messy and hard. And the gospel comes in like a cool breeze on a hot day and pushes all the fog away, and you get to see what's in front of you. And most of the time, we're standing a whole lot closer than the edge when, than we realized. 
And the beauty of the gospel is it, it stops us in our tracks and it gives us a better way forward. It keeps us from plunging down. The gospel brings us clarity. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he was going to do. And that is he took all the sin of mankind upon himself willingly on the cross for us. Three days later, through the power of that same gospel, rose himself from the grave, defeating death and sin, something we never had to sit in ever again. Will we have pain in this world? Yes. Yep. It will not be easy. But we have hope. We have strength. We have good news. We have the gospel. We have a promise that someday, whenever this life is over, however long that lasts, we will take our last breath here and we will stand in the presence of our King. That's the good news of the gospel. He fills us with His Spirit. He empowers us with Himself. He sends us to give that good news out to the rest of the world that we come in contact with. As His ambassadors, He entrusts us with this message of good news and hope to the world. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And as we get ready to do this last song where we sing about the beautiful name of Jesus, I just wanted to say one more takeaway. To that first one is Jesus is the king we need and that our soul craves. And the second is this. Easter is a declaration of ultimate victory. Not temporary victory. Ultimate victory. Satan will never win again. Whatever wins he could put in his win column up to the point of Jesus raising himself from the dead are no longer wins and he will never get anything close to a win ever again. He loses all across the board. The victory has been sealed. The resurrection, Easter Sunday, is a declaration of ultimate victory. Nothing could ever top that good news. See, the sad reality is that a lot of people who claim to be Jesus followers don't live a victorious life. They don't live out of victory. They live with their heads hung low, defeated, letting life and Satan convince them that they've lost when they've lived in, they, they should be living in absolute victory. You know, following the end of British rule in India in the 1940s, a group of researchers wanted to study the impact of the end of British rule on the life of that nation. And after six months of being there and studying the people of India, they gave up and they went home. See, so though the British had been present in India since the 1600s, many people in the villages of the country weren't even aware that the British had ever even been there. Could it be that God himself had visited the world and people have lived and died without ever being aware of that event? We live in a world where the king has come, but millions are totally unaware that he is present because the ones he's, he's given the gift of representing him are there, but the people who need him don't even know that he was present. From the 1600s to 1940, the British occupied India, and most of the people didn't even know they were there. That's a sad statement, isn't it? Christ is in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your marriage, in your families. 
Christ is there if he is in you. But do the people in your life know that? Will there be a survey done? Like We didn't even know Jesus was here. You see, Easter is a declaration of ultimate victory. And when we've won something, we should be hailing it. We should be proud of it. We should be declaring the beautiful and powerful name of Jesus. That's what the resurrection allows us to live out of, victory. Would you pray with me? God, victory is ours in your name, your beautiful and powerful name. You have sealed our victory through the resurrection. We want to be grateful people. We want to live in that victory. We want other people to see it. So, Father, I pray that you would awaken and enliven hearts today with this truth and reality. You're not just the king that we want. You are the king that we needed and continually need. Inspire us, fill us with your spirit, and give us the opportunity to sing loudly and proclaim your beautiful name. And in that name we pray, amen. Would you please stand with me?